My name is Julian Guderlai. I'm here today with City Councillor Jeremy Loveday. Hi, thanks for, thanks for having me on here today. Awesome. I'm, I'm happy that, that, that you're with me today. I think this is a great way to talk about the city and Victoria as kind of a smart city or an innovation uh, hub to talk directly with somebody who's involved in the day-to-day -day of, of the city's life. Looking forward to our chat. So, Jeremy, why don't we just start with like just a more personal question? How you how you get into the zone? Like, what is it for you that like a routine you have every day? Is there like a practice or? Well, there's a couple things that are really key for me. Maintaining a creative practice. I'm a poet, so so I need to write. That self-expression is key. I also need exercise. So without exercise, I I don't function very well. And so those two things, making sure that they're as close to daily as possible is key for my mental health and also my productivity. Awesome. I, um, I love that. I journal almost every day. So how does it look when you, you say you're a poet? Is it that you, you journal? I know you do spoken word as well. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more because I think that's a very curious uh, practice. Well, yes. Yeah, so journaling, I, I do that. That just means I'm just dumping thoughts, right? And, and that's that's a good release, and then some of those end up being turned into performance pieces, as I do do a spoken word poetry. Really cool. So, when you say dumping thoughts, I know that as a city councillor, you have like anything from super productive conversations to inspiring conversations to very challenging, uh, controversial conversations. Like, is that part of how you cope with it? I guess a, a little bit on the work side. I mean, some of it's yeah ideas because one of the best parts of being city councillor is that I meet with people all the time and they're people that aren't I wouldn't necessarily run into in my daily life otherwise people who have very different looking lives than I do but I get to meet with them listen to their ideas you know help them think critically about their ideas and then work collaboratively to bring those ideas forward and that's really the highlight of being a city councillor for me and uh, so sometimes that means dumping those kind of ideas down so I don't forget them. And sometimes it's clearing out the clutter. That's important too, I think. <laughs> Not all thoughts are good thoughts. And, and so getting those out is key to getting them out of the way sometimes. Yeah, cool. Not, not all thoughts are good thoughts. For me personally also, like, I had to learn how to cultivate through meditation and then also journaling kind of which thoughts to keep, right? And which, yeah. which thoughts to maybe follow along. Yeah. Cool. Let me, let me, yeah, let me, let me, let me, so not all thoughts are good thoughts. Maybe that's a little too absolute. Not all thoughts are worth following up on. I think they're worth having and, and recognizing, and, but then of course, might not want to dedicate any time to them. Right, or, <laughs> or share them out loud. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's I, totally understandable. Well, let's jump right into the meat of the conversation because one of the reasons why I have you on the show, we talked about purpose quite a bit uh, before we started the recording, what is it for you that, that made you really say, I want to be city councillor? I want to be involved in my city's politics. Well, I'd always been interested in politics and creating change, trying to build a better world for us all to live in. And, you know, for years that looked like being interested in international issues, uh, human rights issues, climate change. And then when I moved back to Victoria about 10 years ago, I realized that more and more, my focus was on local issues. I was working with youth a lot. I was working on issues on a neighborhood basis. And then I realized that you know, cities are where you can actually get stuff done. And you know, I'd been working on larger 
issues at the international level and really felt like I was banging my head against the wall. And, and then seeing that cities are actually what impacts people's daily lives. And that's where you can really uh, yeah, make the rubber hit the road in terms of creating change and making people's lives better. Exciting. Yeah, you just said where the rubber kind of hits the road, right? So it's the, where people actually live. Because on the, on the global policy level, maybe you can create guidelines or, or direction signs, but that, that's, that's not really how we live. So tell us a little bit more of this like community life and how you've observed it over the last years. Well, it's been really interesting because the more I get deeper into it, the more I see it everywhere, where I see possibility for change. And that can be, you know, just looking at the, the minutia of a public space and what makes public space work, what makes someone want to sit on that bench rather than avoid that bench. And for a long time, Victoria, you know, is a place of abundance, a place of much natural beauty. But the city was designed in a lot of ways to make people not stay. You know, growing up here, it was a very quiet place. There was uh, not much going on. And frankly, it was a place where young people left. And I think that's changed. It's now a place of opportunity. And our, I think the way we're designing public spaces is also changing to be a, a place where we're able to look at those spaces and say, what's possible here? And we're not quite at the, the place where whatever's vision becomes possible, but we're, we're going in the right direction. Very interesting. So let's talk quite a bit more about this, like what makes a public space a good space? I, I love you know, the question that, that you that you just uh, posted there, like, what makes a person want to sit on this bench or not? It comes down to that kind of micro-observation. So what makes a public space a good space? You know, a uh, sense of place. So actually, when I ran for council in 2014, on my original rack card that was going to go out when I was knocking on doors, it had a bullet point on it with one of my promises was about placemaking. And I did... Uh, a focus group with different residents from all over the city and asked them, hey, what do you think about, you know, what I'm suggesting for the city? And everyone said, I don't know what placemaking is. Mm. And that's changed even in, since 2014. So even in the last four years, I think if you ask a lot of people now, they will know what placemaking means. It means building a sense of place. And so I think that's the difference between just a space where there's a bench and a place where you go and you sit and maybe you meet your neighbors place where you can create connections to each other and create, create connections to yourself and that sense of place. And I think when you're looking at any great public space in the world, that's what it is. It's you feel connected to it. I love where you're going with this. I think that's what I grew up in Europe, as you know, and that's what made Victoria such a promising city about five years ago when I moved here, because we, we do have quite a few of these possibilities and opportunities. If it's the downtown that's semi-pedestrian or Bastion Square, or if it's all these little villages from Estevan to Cadborough to Oak Bay to Fernwood, I really love this feeling of micro-communities within one city that kind of lend itself to slow down. Yes. Yeah, that's key. And so village centers, really, I, there has been a rebirth and it's been citizen-led. And that's what's been so amazing about it. If you look at you know, some of them happened by accident. They were happy accidents and others were, were by design. You look at, you know, Fernwood Square. That was created because citizens had a vision for shutting down that road and creating a square. And, and when they did that, it, it became a 
vibrant public place. And I think there's lots of places we can look at doing that. I think, you know, in the North Park Village, which is just emerging just in the last few years with new murals, with, you know, crosswalks. It's amazing what a crosswalk can do if it's well-placed. You know, with those murals, crosswalks, there's new businesses going in there. I think if, you, if we shut down uh, North Park Street right there at Cook, that can cr start creating another sense of place in a public square there to help build that village. Yeah, there's a couple of questions that are yeah. bubbling up for me. So I, I feel like one of my favorite quotes, it's like a mantra that I, I go with, is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. <laughs> because, well, first I absolutely have this hyper speed to a lot of my days. And then I, I realize sometimes that going in hyper speed all the time, first of all, it wrecks my own energy. But second, it's also not very efficient with people because you're not actually have taken the time to take them in fully. So for me, this mantra has become like a daily practice practice slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So how can we maybe relate that into our conversation here about like even a crosswalk changes the entire environment because it actually gets everyone to slow down. Yeah. So my question to you is how does a car centric city opposed to a pedestrian centric city, how does that play out? Well, it's the difference between designing something for cars or designing something for the people who might be in the cars, right? And I would rather design a city as a place to be rather than a place to travel through. And, and that's, you know, we look at all of our village centers, they all do slow the cars down. And that's because you know, that's a place where there might be someone crossing the street. There might be kids, there might be dogs, there might be all sorts of things happening. And that's what makes it special is what's happening and who's being there. And so, you know, there is this conflict as we start to try to build a more people-centered city uh, with people who are worried about where they're going to park their cars, how they're going to transport themselves by car. And the city needs to get out ahead of that and make sure that we have a world-class public transit system, make sure that, you know, cycling and walking and other modes of transportation are safe and convenient and you know, that will start to shift how people get around. And all of those other forms of transportation are forms of transportation where you connect with the people around you. They're, they're human scale. Absolutely, yeah. And when you start making eye contact with people, that changes your day and it changes how people interact with, with each other and how they know each other in the city. Exciting in many ways. You, you, just, you just said a world-class public transport system. So. Maybe you can share an insight or two, like what is Victoria doing to have like these innovative world-class ideas or systems or visions implemented? Not enough. And I actually hate the term world-class. I don't usually use it, but I, it sort of slipped out there. But because <laughs> what does it mean, right? Yeah. What I mean is, you know, a transit system that's more convenient than it is to sit in your car in a traffic jam. Right now we don't have that. That's a pretty low bar. But you look at other cities and, and when they have transit systems that work, it's because it's safe, it's convenient, and it's cheaper than driving your car. And more enjoyable. That's the other part. Make it more fun. And so with us, we, you know, we have buses that are somewhat infrequent on most routes. They don't go to every neighborhood. They don't you know, have convenient hubs for transit travel. And I think as we continue to grow, we need to make sure that, that this is a priority and you know, we can be looking at rapid transit. I think, you know, buses for now, but, uh, you know, I would love to see 
rapid transit of, of other sorts uh, in the future. For example? Well, trains, you yeah. know, I think not, I don't know exactly what that would look like at this point. There's been some studies, but I think I'm hopeful that in the next council term, should I be reelected, that that's something that I'll be pushing. That's coming up this fall, right? Yeah. So reelect this guy if you're wanting to see a more innovative city. Very, very interesting. I feel there are so many ways to go about that. And then there's also obviously like the reality of, of right now, as you said, like people have very obviously like the concern in their mind, like where do I park my car? So how does that look at the city council for you? Like what are the, the forces that kind of want innovation and the forces that are like, oh, we can't do too much innovation. And, and where do you stand in between that? Well, I think one thing we need to be a bit better at is, well, two things. One is communication. I think in some, in some ways, things are moving quick in this city right now, quicker than they have in my lifetime. And I've you know, spent the majority of my life here. And I think we need to be better at communicating that change. And then also, I think we need to make sure that we're meeting the needs of residents now while we build the city for the future. So, so that I think if we're able to meet those immediate needs, we can then have more room to be bold out you know, on, in the long-term visioning and the long-term action in terms of building that innovative city that I think you and I would both like to see. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. for me, Victoria is like predestined to be like a role model city within North America, even across, across national borders for a couple of reasons. And this is just my observation and, and people might share that or not. I feel like we have an extreme high quality of, of life in the sense that we're obviously geographically blessed, but we also have a, a level of density and a level of like kind of rural spread that is beautiful to live. There's, you can drive 15, 20 minutes and you're basically in wild nature. Yeah. And at the same time, we have a dense downtown with industries, with tourism, with government, with tech. We have quite an international pool of people that is now interested to come to Victoria for technology. Um, and then we have big cities like Vancouver or Seattle just next door that are either a 20-minute airplane ride or a two-hour ferry ride from us. So I feel like we have the best of all worlds here while we also have this, we talked about it a little bit, like village squares, semi-pedestrian zones. And we'll work on that part. We'll work on that part to make them pedestrian zones. Yeah. So for, from that perspective, I feel Victoria is predestined to grow into like a role model position. And as you said, like taking into account what people need today and now and making people's lives better today and now while building for the future. So let me ask a question based on that. Like, what does that really mean for you in very tactile terms? Like, what would be this future, like 5, 10, 15 years ahead that we want to be ready for? It's a really good question. You know, I think one of the things that I want to make sure we're doing is, like, as you say, Victoria is an eminently livable city. There you can, you know... You can take the morning off and go surfing. You can be up on a mountain skiing. You can be swimming in the ocean or paddle boarding in the gorge or any of it. You yeah. know, rock climbing. Anything you want to do, it's yeah. here, and it and that's amazing. And because of that, that's one of the main drivers of attracting the, the tech sector and, and that boom that we're seeing here. And you know, I think we need to continue to protect the wilderness around the city. So have strong urban containment boundaries. So that we can, you know, have a dense downtown core, as you say, have a livable city that doesn't sprawl out and cut down all of the old growth trees and, and infringe on that beauty. And while we do that, we've got to make sure that we don't drive out 
people who are working class. And so we don't hollow out the city with all the new money that's coming in. Mm -hmm. So I think our biggest challenge is affordability. And I think we do have some time right now, not much, but to not go down the road of San Francisco, of Vancouver, of Toronto, places where, you know, average working class people can't afford to live anymore. And so that needs to be, in my opinion, the top priority while we protect the things that make the city special and we make sure we get out ahead of it, building lots of housing for, for average folks so that we can continue to have a diverse city because that's one of the things that makes it special. I don't want this city to be a playground for the rich. I want it to be a playground. I want it to be a playground for everybody. A playground for everyone. I, yeah. I hear you on that. And I think that's what makes a city a city is the diversity of having everyone there from every income sector, every background and every path or walk of life, right? That's what makes a city livable and enjoyable for, for myself as well, because this is another piece in Victoria, British Columbia that I really I want to acknowledge and I value so much is people have time for each other more than in other cities around the world. Maybe not like in a rural urban a rural yeah. community of 200 souls, but people actually look each other in the eye here and very often you'd walk anywhere in town and you, you get a, a couple of hellos or, or good mornings. And if you wanted to, you could check in with your fellow community member and yeah. hey, how's it going today? You know, like, actually, how are you doing? And I feel this is a big value that we, we can lose because that's what makes us live worthy or worthy to live in is like the with each other, right? Yes. Yeah, the, and, uh, you know, one thing we can continue to build on, I think, is the, the sense of belonging. And we do have, you know, along with this tech sector boom and all these new young people that are coming in and, and building a more vibrant city, we also have an aging population. So it's going in both directions. And those are the, you know, it's sort of young people and older people, and both are growing segments of the population. And specifically among the older population, there is some isolation. And so how do we build that intergenerational sense of belonging as well and make sure we're bringing along all of our residents into this change and into this changing city? So what would it take for Victoria as a city to, to lead the way in, in, in social and economic and maybe in, in also in like a kind of urban structure ways? So in a very tactile question, like what would it take for Victoria to become a city where we can test things that we've seen on an international level work? Like like shared living between um, elderly and students or being an incubator for some kind of self-driving car test or something like that that might scare some people but that actually really shows us are these tests that we can do for a larger part of our society. What keeps Victoria from being that or what would it take to get there? Uh, it would take courage. I think it would take compassion and it would take communication. I think those three things would allow us to take those steps. I think we are starting to move in the direction of being open to pilot projects. We've done a number in this council term that have worked out sometimes and not worked out, out other times. Nothing as big as a, you know, a self-driving car pilot. That one's hard to do because uh, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit to self-driving cars, but what's the point in sitting in a self-driving car traffic jam? There is no point. You know, yeah, you can watch TV or be on your phone. You can do that all day long. So, you know, what you really want is to make sure that that's a way to get people out of single family or single occupancy vehicles. That's mm -hmm. a way to get away from vehicle ownership so that you can, you know, reduce the amount of space that's for cars in the city. You can reduce the amount of parking that's needed. You can 
you know, free up some of your money, some of your personal money to spend on other things because you don't need to own a car anymore. You know, I think there's a lot of benefit to that, but only if we're solving problems we actually have. And, you know, so I'm, I'm interested in seeing these types of pilot yeah. projects, but they will take a lot of courage because people are resistant to change. It's, change isn't easy and it's dislocating for people when they've lived one way for a long time and then someone, you know, and it's often seen as someone new, comes in and says, okay, this is, we're going to try this. I don't want to try that. We're asking for that leap of faith, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a tough place, but I think we, we do, we're perfect for it here. We're compact. We have, you know, as we've talked about the village nodes, another thing that will stop us from doing that is the regional structure of having 13 different municipalities. Right. And so when we look at who's complaining about parking downtown, who's complaining about moving away from a car-centric city, a lot of those people don't live in the city. They don't actually uh, vote for me. They don't actually, you know, they live in Langford and they've chosen to live in a suburb and they've chosen to sit in a traffic jam because they can afford a single family house up there for the most part. Um, and so they haven't chosen to have the same type of living situation as many people in Victoria. Got it. So that's also what you mean with communication. That's something we can do better in, in town is to like inform each other about these like small elements that really change a conversation. If, people actually complaining about issues don't even live here, then maybe what we need is to include more people that live here or to build a bridge to those people who live in Lankford. Yeah, there's there's that. And then there's also looking at... Metaphorical bridge. Yeah. <laughs> no bridges to Lankford. And then... Trains, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Trains to Lankford. The other part is, you know, looking at communication. We've had some projects in this council term where there's been... We're doing something and it's pretty simple. It's a change that should make life better, but the conversation propels itself outside of the conversation that we're having. Right. And so then what people think is happening is not what actually is proposed, and that riles up opposition to it. And then we can't any longer have just a frank conversation about what needs to happen, because there's this whole fear-based conversation that's happening outside of you know, the official channels of engagement and consultation. I absolutely, I absolutely hear you on that. And I think this is a problem we're facing around the world. Social media and fake news certainly have made it one or two levels more complex. Maybe though, they also bring the answer with being created, right? Because like what would stop the city to identify who are the social influencers that could actually share what are parts of what the city is actually discussing so we don't have to talk about hypothetical issues of change that nobody wants that aren't even real or about bike lanes that are a problem for so many people but in fact they're only a problem for a few people and a lot of people love them but don't take the time to speak up about it. We're lucky that most people in this city have a fairly progressive vision of the city and you talk about the values of social inclusion, of yeah. community wellness, of you know in making sure we're protecting the environment. The majority of Victoria residents believe in those. And so we're lucky to have that as our starting point mm -hmm. and to have uh, you know, a shared belief in the fact that this city is really special and that we need to continue to make it special. And I think we're lucky to be starting from there. There's not a lot of people who would disagree with those main tenets and that you know, sense of community is important and that we want to have places where people can be. So you know, I think there is some conversation that is 
you know, as I said, it's propelling itself. But even if you talk to those people one-on-one, they'll, they get it. Totally. Yeah. Exciting. So let me maybe switch focus here just slightly. You've been a city councilor now for four years. What are maybe like three pieces that you've learned that you possibly expected or didn't expect that you could, if somebody, if you're listening out there and at one, one day you'd like to be city, city councilor, this is something you'd be like, this is something I've learned, hard facts. What are the pieces of wisdom you pass on? Well, I think one of them is that it's, I found it pretty easy to get one-off things done. So, you know, to get a motion passed and to make one change, that's pretty easy. You know, you've got to work with your community and community organize and, and bring that sort of pressure to bear, honestly, and then you can get it through. What's hard is creating culture. And so, you know, at council, one of the issues I've worked on a lot is accessibility and making sure that our city isn't creating unnecessary barriers for people's access to infrastructure, programming, facilities. Right. And so as soon as I got on council, I started the accessibility working group and it's people with lived experience with accessibility challenges in the city. We started a reserve fund that can only be spent to undo barriers that already exist. And you know, that all felt great. I was like, oh, solve it in like six months. <laughs> uh, no, it's been four years and we've made, you know, we've done a number of pilot projects, which, you know, for example, tactile domes at intersections you know, the accessible pedestrian signals in more locations. We've got a lot of hearing loop in City Hall. There's a number of pilot projects and projects that have gone through, but the cultural shift in a, you know, 800 person organization in all of our community centers, right. that, that's a lot slower. And, you know, it, it takes in some ways a, a re-education. Like people have to start looking at each project differently and have to realize that this is, a priority and it's also a lens that we now see things through I think the same thing can be said about development we've got a lot of cranes going up mm-hmm. and you know I think that shows the economic life of the city but at the same time I think we always have to be asked is this the right type of building absolutely put yeah. in? you know are we getting the units we need in terms of affordability are we getting units that average people can afford or are we just getting luxury condos and then on the other side are we getting buildings that are going to be attractive or are we going to, in 20 years, look back and be like, oh, that was built in 2015. And we'll know that all those buildings were built in 2015 because they look the same. And, you know, they're kind of like you look back on some buildings, buildings from the 50s or 60s, right? Yeah, 50s or 60s. Or, you know, you've, we've got some, some peachish condos. You can tell when those were built, you know. Yeah. Interesting. So there's a lot of patience. I think that's what I heard is, is one of the values you really had a look at from a different angle, but then also making sure you're actually in touch with, with the reality and how people feel about it or how people think about it. Yeah. And I think that patience isn't something that comes naturally to me. So that's been a, you know, looking at people talk about how slow governments move. Right. And, Mm. and that's been something that I've had to sort of get my head around and how do we create, continue to create change while Realizing that this is an organization that's been moving in a certain direction for a long time. Now we've got to try to swing it, you know. I think you're bringing up a very, very interesting, like, structural point. Just in the way we expect governments or organizations to to make choices. And the way we've become kind of complacent almost, in in my words. 
about how long things need to take. Because in reality, is that really true? Do things really need to take that long? I, I don't know. I, I personally think patience is a virtue and also maybe not naturally, we're not naturally equipped with patience across the board for a reason, you know, because it is wonderful when you can realize, oh, this is a trend that is benefiting the well-being of our citizens. Like, why not support that trend instead of waiting five years and then realizing, oh, that trend now passed. Yeah. You know, like one, there's been some things that just happen very quickly. And, and, and that, that's when it feels really exciting. You know, for example, this isn't something that I had anything to do with, but the do I think the Docklands bike share program is exciting to have, you know, to get new people on bikes. Like I've got a friend who he's never ridden a bike before, Oh wow. but he bought a helmet and now he bikes around the city on these new bikes and he's trying to decide if he wants to invest in a bike. But it, he's decided that that's his primary mode of transportation for now is he's going to try it out. Oh wow. And he's loving it. So, so he will become a cyclist. And that's, that's just one case. And then there's other people who, you know, because they had to travel within their days a bit throughout the city, they're like, well, I have to drive to work because I'll have to go to this meeting. You know, I, I can't take the bus or carpool. Or, right. But now they can take that. They can say, well, I've got this bike and I can just go and, you know, bike to my meeting, bike back. Because it's all within, you know, a pretty accessible distance. Exciting. I think there's lots and lots of these kind of pilot projects or, or different kind of innovative approaches that in, in store for us in the next couple of years. Let me switch it a little bit more to a personal note in this conversation. Yeah. Uh, we talked a lot about quality of life. We talked a lot about Victoria being a special uh, destination for that in, in many regards. Jeremy, for you personally, what is happiness? Hmm. Happiness for me is connection. So... And that can mean connection with a person one-on-one, -on -one, like having you know, eye contact and having conversations and, and that feels like happiness. Uh, you know, spending time with my family and my partner and my, my cat, that feels like happiness because of that connection. I also feel happiness when I'm connected to the environment. So, you know, yesterday I took some time and went for a swim in the, went for a run and then a swim in the ocean. And I felt very happy because I was connected to the place, I was connected to the environment, I was connected to myself through that experience. When I'm writing, I feel connected to my, to my process, and so that feels happy. So I think anytime I'm feeling genuinely connected and genuinely present, I feel happy. Beautiful. I like that. A follow-up question to that. What is purpose for you? Purpose. Pur like in general, what is purpose? Yeah, in general, what is purpose? And we can talk about yeah. a personal purpose as well. That's an interesting question. I haven't really, I don't have a working definition that I go with, but I think purpose, you know, is, is your, I think there's a connection to the drive of how you live your life, I think. And so what you're trying to cultivate with that. And so like looking at myself, which is really my only experience in the world. So that's my best way to relate to it. I think is, you know, I, I think, my purpose, a lot of the time I think of as being an amplifier. That's, I think of, I use that word a lot. So an amplifier. Yeah, amplifying other voices, amplifying ideas, and, and also, you know, creating connections between different ideas for people and connections between different people. I often play a connector role. And so those two things feel like my purpose a lot of the time. 
Sweet. Let me ask another question then. Yeah. What's your stand on a topic like universal basic income? Universal basic income? I think I would love to see a pilot project on it. You know, that's one of those ones where I think, I think we need to be careful about it. Um, yeah. But I would love to see it, you know, tried out. Here in, in British Columbia? Yeah, and so I actually brought a motion to the city council. It was an advocacy motion calling for universal basic income, um, calling for a pilot project, and actually suggesting that Victoria could be a pilot project location. Mm. You know, I think it's the same as a lot of these issues. If we're using it to create better world and, you know, better opportunity and better life, more joy, more happiness for people, then that wellness is worth it. If we create it, but then people still are driven to continue to operate in the ways that are harmful, then I think it's not worth it. Things, okay, it's great, we're automating, but are we still working 50 hour work weeks? Because the whole point of automating something is so that we can work less and have more joy, right? And, yeah. and so, you know, with our connection to our phones, you know, the, all of these, all of this technology should be making Are life we actually more connected. Yeah. 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 It should be making life better. And so if basic income is making life better, then let's do it. You and know? the only way to know you're saying is to actually test it and create a pilot that shows the real life application. I think so. And I think, you know, there's some fear that that leads to cutting other social programs, that some of the drive to push a basic income is so that Okay, well now you have basic income, you don't need healthcare. And to me, that's not a good trade-off. That's not going to add to wellness. Right. That's not going to make people better off. Well, the question that kind of arises for me, and this is, a, I think, a very interesting topic in, in, in 2018, globally, actually. Yeah. The question that comes up for me is, like, what's the benefit of an isolated basic income pilot that doesn't include a larger part of the population? Yeah, I mean, I think if you do it just in a small enough area that you don't get a real test and, you know, you have it in one jurisdiction that doesn't actually have authority over all the other types of impacted programs, then it probably won't work. But if you can do it, you know, if you did it province-wide, I, right. I think at that point... Wow. To stay on the, the topic of basic income, so I think it's a very bold notion to say, like, take a whole province to, to go that way, Right. And I think only then we can actually get really like globally valid data points. Because as you're saying, like what would be the benefit of cutting a health welfare at the same time? It probably won't because then you take something away and just to say, well, this isn't working either. So we have yeah. to go back to this. Yeah. But if you holistically design a package of a basic income or a basic income combined with, with a welfare piece or, or a health savings piece, I think this is kind of the social way a lot of our societies are wanting to grow and it takes, again, courage to test it. So what stops the province of British Columbia to do that? You'll have to ask them. Because <laughs> you clearly have the courage to bring it up. You said you even put it into city council. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of debate I think we need to have. I think, you know, there's, I, I have friends who are very opposed and I have friends who are very in favor. And I've never seen them have that conversation directly. And, Interesting. And, and I think that that happens on a lot, a lot of issues, but I think basic income is one where people are either really in favor, they're really opposed, or they have no clue what it means. And, you know, that shows that, you know, when we're talking about how we need courage and communication, some communication needs to happen before we have the courage, I think. 
but you know, even that communication takes some courage. So even absolutely, yeah. especially when you're kind of you know you're going into a space of a controversial kind of confrontation, right? Like yeah. a lot of people shy away from that just out of principle. Yeah. So yeah. So facilitated dialogue though I think would be really helpful mm -hmm. as a you know as a first step towards any sort of bull pilot project of that type. And so interesting to know that you are in favor of it, you are in favor of, of testing it. And I think what I'm also sensing is you're the first one to admit we simply don't know yet if it's a good idea or not. But we have to test pathways like that to know more. Yeah, and I think on other issues, there's some, like, we know they're good ideas because they've worked in every other city. Yeah. And so we're testing not whether it's a good idea, but whether it works on this street or whether it works in our downtown. You know, we don't need to test the idea. But in basic income, I think it is... You know, there's definitely signs pointing to the fact that it's a good idea, but we do need a test, and someone's going to need to be bold enough to to be the one to go first. To be the bold enough to go first, I, I like that. Let me ask a very bold question and a highly controversial topic in Victoria. I think in a lot of West Coast cities, Vancouver, San Francisco, and that is homelessness. And I know it's it's a very complex topic as well. What are global kind of tests that you've seen that help with the problems of drug addiction and living in the streets and kind of being in this endless cycle of being an outsider to society and what are the local things that, that you'd like to see? Looking at specifically at housing first, hmm. we, we don't have enough housing that people can afford. We don't have adequate housing for people without incomes or with low incomes and so that itself is a driver of homelessness. So you, I think you know we need to make sure you know, I, I believe in housing first, so you, you need to have housing. I think people won't get uh, healthy on the street, for the most part, Yeah. right? So they need, to, like him, yeah. Yeah, they need to be in a, a safe, sheltered space where then they can start to get the help they need, uh, whether that be counseling or addiction treatment or, or you know, maybe it's just, that's, that, for some of them, that's all they need. Uh, they're just, you know, down on their luck. So looking at that, I think we need, you know, a bold plan to make sure we have enough housing for everyone. And, you know, we've now got $90 million here in the region through the CRD Housing First program, which is you know, one of the things I'm most proud of helping create on council. But that's not going to be enough. There's some people saying it's going to be enough. It's not enough. We do need more of a, a whole shift. And I think we also need addiction. We need to start looking at addiction differently. Yeah. So I, I believe in the full decriminalization of drugs, make sure there's a clean drug supply. And we've, we've talked about that actually before, you and I, so that's why I said, like, what are global examples? And Portugal yeah. comes to mind for yeah. me where the decriminalization of drugs, that doesn't mean you're supposed to take them, it just means no. you're not, not a criminal. So yeah. your addiction problem is looked at in a different angle. It's a health problem, yeah. you know, and that's how it should be treated. And that also means we need enough healthcare services there for people to get the help they need. So in Portugal, people often cite Portugal as saying, well, they decriminalized it. And now, you know, there's less people who are addicted and there's less people dying and there's less crime. And, and all of that is true, but they also have abundance of therapeutic recovery options. So yeah, maybe, you know, you're not, you're not just saying, okay, here it's not, you're not a criminal for doing it. There's also, if you're ready, you have a space for you available right. that you can afford. Right now, 
we don't have those spaces in this city. You have to either go, either have to pay a lot of money or you have to go to the mainland. So then you're on the mainland, you're getting sober, you're, you're getting through your, into your, your rituals and your routines to try to get yourself through each day uh, living sober. But then you come back here and you don't have your net. You don't have that safety net you've worked so hard to create in, while you've been in your residential treatment. So I think, you know, just yesterday, actually, there was money announced from the provincial government to open a therapeutic recovery treatment center based off of the model in Portugal in, uh, at Choices, which is UV Royal. So that, I think that's a really great step in the right wow. direction. So that was, that'll have 50 spaces. That's obviously not enough, but it's a step in the right direction. Unfortunately, not enough, but yeah. it's, it's the reality if, if you uh, walk through Victoria with an observant eye. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. Um, you right? got to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's a great step forward, and I I sense that a lot of what you're saying is when you make bold actions, like let's say you decriminalize all drugs, you really have to understand that that's just step one, yeah. and you really have to understand that education, communication, and a holistic kind of like a net almost or a webbing or weaving of of support, really is is a topic in all these areas we talked about. If it's self-driving cars, parking, and technology, or if it's housing, or if it's homelessness or livability of a city. It's really when you make a bold step into a pilot project, same maybe with basic income, yeah. you really need to make step two and three right away as well, which is education and, and, and yeah. creating the support. Doing it with intention, right? And I think that that's key to the success of it. So like thinking critically about, okay, from all as many different angles and as many different viewpoints and lived experiences as possible, what are the unexpected outcomes of this pilot project and trying to know that ahead of time so that you can build those into your pilot project. Of course you can't predict everything and that's why you're doing the pilot project. But you've got to go in with you know, a sense of knowledge and a sense of curiosity. I think you need both. A sense of knowledge and a sense of curiosity. I think that's like a, a valuable uh, piece of wisdom for life. Jeremy, as we're coming to the end of, of this conversation, I. I'd love to ask you one more question, and that is more like a, a visionary question. A question, if we look beyond kind of the horizon of even just one lifetime, if we as humanity had a 200-year vision for Earth, a shared vision, what would your, your piece would be about? Like what would your vision be for anywhere between 50, 100, 200 years? I think it has to revolve around living in a way that is in tune with this planet. And... So much of the way that we've lived the last number of hundreds of years mm. has been destroying the planet that we rely on. And we need to start using all of our wisdom, all of our technological means, all of the you know, wealth and abundance that we've created on this planet, start using that creativity and that momentum into the big issues we're facing, and that's climate change, that's you know the destruction of, of our earth. That's uh, the fact that you know income inequality is getting worse and worse. And so, how do we make sure that we can live together in a way that creates that sense of belonging between humans, and in a way that we are at peace with our with the environment around us and healing it. And I think if we can do that, then we will be successful as humans. And I think that that needs to be the goal. No, it's been great to chat. And my, I don't often get to 
think about these uh, these big questions you know on a Tuesday morning. So nice. Well, it's yeah. been a pleasure to have you on the show and, yeah. and talk both about like the reality of some parts, yeah. some pieces in the city, but also like giving it space as we've just experienced yeah. as well, right? And and realizing that uh, we're all here for for a shared experience after all. Cool. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. I hope you too enjoyed this episode. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or Spotify, Green Planet, Blue Planet Podcast, and join me and others in the conversation on Facebook, Green Planet, Blue Planet Podcast on Facebook. Wherever you are, have yourself a summer day.